Welcome to Core Parenting Conversations with Kaylee. My name is Kaylee Kukwa, and I've spent the last decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of two, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my book knowledge and combining it with real life experiences to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations that always include practical tips so you can walk away feeling inspired and empowered to make simple yet impactful changes in your family's life. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to another Core Parenting Conversation with Kaylee. I am so excited for the episode I have for you today because I got to sit down and talk with Jessica LaHaye. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure. Maybe you've heard of it. How the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. And her most recent book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. For over 20 years, Jess has taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools and spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont and serves as a prevention and recovery coach at SANA, a medical detox and recovery center in Stowe, Vermont. She has written about education, parenting, and child welfare for the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and her biweekly column, the Parent Teacher Conference, ran for three years at the New York Times. She designed and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids' award-winning animated series, The Stinky and Dirty Show, and was a 2019 Pushcart Prize nominee. Jess holds the dubious honor of having written an article that was later adapted as a writing prompt for the 2018 SAT. Ooh, interesting. She co-hosts the hashtag AmWriting podcast from her empty nest in Vermont. I do want to say that we are specifically focusing today all about her book, The Addiction Inoculation. This is a subject near and dear to my heart. It's very personal. I was so glad to find her book and read her book and automatically implement some of the strategies she suggests, the mindsets, the approaches. And she really dispels a lot of myths surrounding alcohol, our youth, and how it really impacts them that I held and believe based on nothing. And she has really well laid out and thought out research that's very compelling. And I just, I believe in my heart that all parents need to hear this conversation. So please stick around, pop in those headphones. This may not be a conversation that you want young ears to hear, but I think it's such an incredibly impactful, important conversation for parents to listen to. So thanks so much for being here. Now let's dive in to this core parenting conversation. Hello, Jess, and welcome to Core Parenting Conversations. I am so excited to have you on for today's conversation. I am so excited to be here for today's conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like I've just, I followed you on social media ever since your most recent book came out, The Addiction Inoculation, which is what we're going to focus on today, because your 
information and messaging really resonated with me. Listeners and followers of mine know I have a history of I'm an adult child, family with substance abuse disorder runs genetics. So there's many, many Mm -hmm. family members who struggle with it. Mm -hmm. And this is a conversation I've just been wanting to bring because I think it's one that parents don't know how to navigate. Right. They may feel like it's important, but until it's a problem, I'm just going to avoid it because I don't know how to have it. Yeah. And you wrote a whole book on how to <laughs> have it. And it really does start in early childhood. And so that's what I want to focus on today is how as parents can we start having these conversations with our kids early on and set that foundation for them. Yeah. Ever since, so my first book was The Gift of Failure. And before that, even I wrote a column called The Parent-Teacher Conference. And so my entire, about like all the things that teachers find it hard to tell parents and the things that parents oh. find it hard to tell teachers. So I seem to have built this odd little niche <laughs> for difficult conversations. <laughs> it's, I, I didn't intend it. that. I did not intend that to happen, but here we are. Yeah, this stuff is really hard. And, you know, a friend of mine is Peggy Ornstein, who wrote the books Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex, both highly, highly, highly recommend. If you want to know more about that topic, definitely. She's a great place to go. And it's never just one conversation, right? It's lots and lots of conversations, which is fortunate because the more we have this conversation, the easier it gets. Like it is seriously a no big deal, no stress. It's no weirder than talking about what we're having for dinner in our house, but that's only because we've been doing it for a long time. And it's been a part of our conversation since my kids, I got sober when my kids were nine and 14, but even before that, because I come from a family with a lot of substance use disorder, they have been aware of the topic and it's, you know, wrecked holidays before, and it's been something we've discussed. You know, I'm a big advocate of honesty with kids, obviously developmentally appropriate honesty with kids. And so they've understood when that holiday got essentially canceled for all of us because of a relapse in one of their relatives, they knew why. They wasn't like, oh, you know, we didn't come up with some like crazy story about and call it something, a euphemism to sort of sweeten it up. It was, this is the reality when, you know, you relapse and make life chaotic so that other people are in danger or uncomfortable or whatever, this is what happens. So anyway, but the long way around to the answer to your question is, you know, all of these conversations have to be developmentally appropriate. We know that the most effective substance use prevention programs start really young, like pre-K and kindergarten. And that freaks people out because the intimation there is that I'm like, yeah, we start talking about, you know, heroin with kids in kindergarten, which is obviously not the case. We start with conversations (laughs) about You know, the difference between things that are for external use only and the things that are for internal use only, like what, you know, why when we brush our teeth, do we not just go ahead and swallow the toothpaste? I mean, if it's good for us on our teeth, why don't we just swallow it? Wouldn't it be even better? And of course, there's part of my addiction mentality, which is like, if some is good, then more is better. And, you know, that kind of idea. But, and then as they get older and, you know, and in the book, I talk a little bit about sort of how younger kids think and process and the ways that they are more likely to get engaged in a conversation. So, you know, really little kids love pattern identification. They love finding letters, finding numbers as they're learning them. So use that to your advantage. They love talking about things through stories or counting through songs, all that kind of stuff. So use that to your advantage by there's a prescription bottle sitting on the counter 
and you're brushing your teeth together, you can say, you know, can you find the letters of mommy's name on that prescription bottle? And why do you think we even have to have mommy's name on that prescription bottle? Can't it just be for everybody? You know, in those conversations, and specifically that one about prescriptions and not taking prescriptions that aren't prescribed to us is so important because, you know, most people seem to know that if their kids are going to start misusing, for example, pain pills or something, they're going to most likely be getting them from our medicine cabinet or a friend's medicine cabinet. And yet only 10% of parents admit they ever have a conversation with their kids about misusing prescription medications. And just as a side note, you know, for parents who are like, oh, that's a high school conversation. So I was in Tennessee a while ago um, (laughs) and the average age of initiation for alcohol is somewhere around between like 13.5 to 13.7 years. And I was in Tennessee recently and I realized I like to look up what's going on in the particular place where I'm speaking. And the average age of initiation in that part of Tennessee was 13.7 for alcohol, but it was 13.5 for misuse of prescription medications. So there, kids are going for prescription medications before they start initiating with alcohol. And so, you know, that you got to stop for a second and say, you know, if we're waiting till middle school to have these conversations, we're waiting too long. This is too late. We got to start earlier than that. Yeah. Too late. And it's going to be more uncomfortable as they get older because there's experience there now for them, you know, or they've seen it. And I just, I got goosebumps when you said it's as simple as you can have that conversation with a four-year-old. Oh, look, can you find mommy's name on here? This is what mommy takes. They put it in a special bottle with my name. And so I know it's just for me. Like that is a totally approachable, Mm -hmm. non-judgmental, very neutral conversation that's easy to have, but lays a really solid foundation for establishing just that precedent for later on in life. And, you know, there are all kinds of things that come up in the news with little kids, like, you know, kids eating Tide Pods. That's a perfect (sighs) opportunity for a discussion about internal use only, external use only chemicals, the similarity between some pills and Skittles. You know, having the conversation about, you know, take, for example, I don't know, an ibuprofen that is a little tablet, but looks like an orange Skittle and say, how are you going to know the difference? Like if you saw this on the floor, how would you know the difference between this and a piece of candy? Well, you probably won't. So you should probably bring that to mommy or daddy before you pop it in your mouth. And I will never be mad at you for bringing that to me if you find it on the floor and probably be more likely to let you pop that into your mouth if it is candy, if you bring it to mommy and daddy first. So that kind of conversation, it's in the news all the time that kids are mistaking you know, something inedible for something edible and how to be careful about it. So use those opportunities. Love that. I love that so much. And I want to go to a point too, especially for listeners who may have family members that are struggling with things like relapse mm-hmm. or, you know, these other cri- more crisis situations. And this question actually came up with a member in my membership group last week about mm-hmm. a family member who is actually dying from liver failure. Mm-hmm. And so she knows that this conversation is going to need to happen with her children about this person. Mm-hmm is having this condition and, and will likely mm-hmm. pass away from it. So when we confront our kids, you said developmentally appropriate, and I use that phrase all the time, but let's <laughs> break it down for people who may not use that phrase all the time. How to talk about something that, look, it is so emotional for us, right? I Like the emotional baggage that right, we as adults right. have around a loved one relapsing, what that means mm-hmm. for us, our previous experiences with that, what that's like, how painful that is. 
our kids, how can we frame that? First of all, I'm assuming it's really important to put all that aside for a minute while we're talking to our children about it so we can Mm -hmm. keep things clear and concise in a way that doesn't seem scary or overwhelming or we over share with them. So what are the key points to make when we're discussing You know, I was just, I was at juice bar. I took my kid for juice after school the other day, like a smoothie yesterday. Mm -hmm. And there were two adults popping pills at the (laughs) table outside. (laughs) I was like, oh, and he didn't pick up on any erratic behavior. But that could have very well been a conversation had he picked up on that. So how do we start? What are the takeaway points that are important for us to make as adults with children? Young children. It's funny because I'm going through some of this. And of course, my kids are older. And I had a conversation with my youngest, my daughter, about why we were waiting so long for the one public bathroom in this park where a lot of people tend to hang out and use. And we were waiting so long because someone was injecting inside and it was taking a long time. So we had that conversation. Um, But with a little kid, obviously, you're not going to be having the same sort of conversations. Just so your listeners know, if you ever want to get a really great book that covers sort of what kids can handle and when and the ways they process and the way they think, and I'm going to, I don't have the, I can't see the book from my, where I'm sitting right now, but it's called Touch Points. And it's a wonderful book that goes through every year and what kid from like the beginning of preschool, what kids can handle, what's happening with their brains, you know, what they're, even when it comes down to like what they can handle from a physical coordination sort of perspective, it's a really valuable book that's on most teachers' bookshelves because when we're trying to figure out what's the best way to get this information through, from a physical perspective, from an emotional perspective, from a logic perspective, it's really a great book to have for that. I adore that book. Mine is well-worn. Okay, so when it comes to little, little kids, especially when it comes to things that they are gonna possibly not understand and get upset about. For example, you know, like when one of my relatives was still using and still drinking and we would go there for holidays, I would get really, really anxious. And sometimes that would appear as anger or um, a short temper and that kind of thing. And I was always really honest with my kids and say, you know, I love my family so much, but families also are complicated. And some people in the family Sometimes it makes me nervous when we have to go and all be together in one house for a couple of days. And so I'm really sorry if I was short with you just now. That's where my emotions are coming from. I mean, obviously, that's not getting at the addiction stuff, but it does lay the foundation, obviously, for kids to be able to identify emotions, talk about emotions. I mean, we know, I know this sounds off topic, but we know that the most effective substance use prevention programs are social emotional learning programs. So Teaching kids how to name their emotions in cognitive behavioral therapy, we talk a lot about, you know, you have to name it to tame it. So in order to be able to deal with the emotion, you have to be able to name the emotion. So the more often we can get kids talking about what it is they are feeling, easing the way by talking about what we're feeling. Also, so they don't, if we are snippy, they have something else to attribute it to and they're not blaming themselves for you being snippy. So that's just a sort of a starting place, which is, Talk about emotions, identify them, name them, talk about ways of dealing with them rather than trying to escape them. So, you know, people often ask me, does this mean I can never drink in front of my kids? (laughs) And I'm like, of 
course not. What this does mean, however, is that if you are going to drink in front of your kids, you have to be really careful about your messaging. Like, why am I drinking? If I come home from work and I say, oh my gosh, I had the worst day at work. I need a drink so badly to sort of deal with today. That's what they're going to hear. And they're going to learn that when you have a really hard day, when you're sad, upset, when you're angry, the way you cope with that is by taking a pill, drinking a drink, rather than actually having a conversation about it, dealing with it, meditating, whatever it is that you can also do in order to handle your emotions. So we want to teach them healthy ways to manage their emotions. Because when you look at the risk factors for substance use disorder, trauma, adverse childhood experience, academic failure, social ostracism, aggression towards other children, all of that stuff is stuff that is about emotions and how we deal with them. And if we teach them that eliminating the feelings is the way that you deal with them, then they're going to learn to take things to eliminate their feelings or press them down or close those, those uh, emotions out. And then we've got a much bigger problem on our hands. And I knew I could take this so many different ways. And I promised myself, I was like, I'm not going to go here, but I just have to insert here. This is my big problem with the mommy Mm -hmm. wine culture. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, leave aside even the accoutrements, you know, the sippy cup tops on the wine glass, all that stuff drives me bananas. But as a teacher, I was teacher for 20 years and I have a photograph from inside a bookstore and it's a set of glasses that says, I teach, therefore I drink. And I'm so insulted on behalf of not just teachers, but human beings, because like, yeah, teaching is really hard, but drinking in order to manage that, well, thank you very much. That's how I ended up in the, you know, where I was in my late thirties, which was, you know, drinking to manage my stress and my anxiety. And what's ironic about that is my biggest fear at that point was getting fired from teaching for drinking. So, you know, I teach, therefore I drink. And then I'm in a position of having to worry about keeping my job because I'm worried someone's going to find out that I'm a raging alcoholic who is within millimeters of drinking during the day, which thank goodness I didn't end up ever drinking at work, but it was just about to happen. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people who had a lot of like just about to happen moment when I got sober. So, so yeah, I think the idea that the prevention for that and that mindset, you know, what we replace that with is emotional conversations, talking about emotions, labeling them, normalizing that Mm -hmm. so that they're not so overwhelming that it is easier to numb. It is easier to check out. It is easier to reach for that substance to make it go away. And so I love that. And you have chapters in the book that talk a lot about, and not just chapters, but like whole sections on different Mm -hmm. ages and stages of different Mm -hmm. protective factors, because there's a lot of predispositions and you just named a ton of predispositions that, you know, for example, my children have, I have, like it runs in our family, but there's all kinds of protective factors that we can take too. And so one of them is normalizing emotions, talking about emotions, all that stuff with younger Mm -hmm. kids. What are a couple other ones that parents with young children in particular can take away? Well, so just so we don't leave the risk picture incomplete. So I mentioned Mm -hmm. a lot of things Mm -hmm. that fall into the like 
about 50 yeah. to 40 to 50 percent of the risk picture is trauma, adverse childhood experiences, and a lot of the other things I mentioned. But the other 50 to 60 percent is genetics. And so, you know, for someone like us, for people like yep. us, we don't have any time to spare, right? So the very yep. first thought I had when I got sober, honestly, well, besides weeping through my entire first 12 step meeting, um, was, uh, and oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired, was, Oh my gosh, I am the child of an alcoholic. My parent is a child of an alcoholic and so on and so on and so on. And P.S., other side of the family as well, my husband and his Mm -hmm. parent and blah, blah, blah. So how do I stop that legacy here? How do I make that stop with me? Because the big experts, like the big organizations, the, you know, nonprofits and the big government organizations are really clear that substance use disorder is preventable. But that's such a huge umbrella-like term. So sorry to derail, but we have no, to talk about all the risk so picture. Important. Yes, and yes. you know there are certain times and periods of time and ages that are more kids are more susceptible than others. But protection. So obviously, early intervention. Since I mentioned, you know, academic failure and social ostracism and undiagnosed learning issues, all that kind of stuff. That's early intervention territory. And the problem with a lot of the risk factors that have to do with things that really do require early intervention is that they tend to get all tangled up. So if a kid is aggressive towards other kids because they're socially ostracized, because they're having academic failure or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, that gets really complicated really quickly. So the, Mm -hmm. as soon as we know that our kid is being aggressive towards other kids, not only is that dangerous, it's a major risk factor for your kid for substance use disorder. As soon as we know that our kid is having problems academically, you know, meeting with the teacher in order to discuss, is this a thing that we have to actually go and look for a diagnosis for? Is this something that we can just use extra support for? What's really interesting is there's layers of protection as well. So I just, I do these daily videos on um, Instagram and TikTok and people got all heated about this video I did where I <laughs> talked about the fact that the earlier a kid starts using, the higher their lifelong risk of substance use disorder. And people just got, I don't know, people, there are two things that I get in the most trouble for when I say that because people want to be able to give their kids sips because they have this belief that if they do, it'll teach kids moderation in some way. And they also are really emotionally tied to the whole, oh, I want to raise my kid just like those European kids. Whereas we know that Europe and the, well, the European Union and the European region in, in general, according to the World Health Organization, not only has the highest levels of alcohol consumption in the world, but they have the highest levels of illnesses and deaths attributable to alcohol in the world. And some of the countries with the highest rates of binge drinking in the world. So people get all heated about that. I want to pause here because I was one of those people, like my best friend growing up is Swiss German. And so I thought that that's just what they do. It's so normalized that like, and why does their culture, why can they handle it? And we can't. And so that's in your book. You share that information in your book. Germany has one of the highest drinking rates in the whole entire world. Their levels are so high. I'm pausing this core parenting conversation to tell you about a new resource coming in March. It's a new workshop I've created called Raising Resilient Problem Solvers. This workshop is helpful for parents of children who are quickly overwhelmed by conflict and may become explosive when things don't go their way. We'll also cover how to handle peer conflict, including sibling conflict, in ways that teach eventual independent problem-solving skills. 
Parents will gain simple, practical action steps to pre-teach skills and learn how to respond in the moment, along with concrete tools, scripts, books, and more to use in your home daily. To join us for this workshop on March 15th, you can find more details and the registration link in the show notes. All core community members are automatically enrolled. And if you can't join us live, no worries. All registered participants and core members will receive the recording within 48 hours of the live event. Now back to this core parenting conversation. I literally sat there and I I like had to stop and put down the book and I was my mind blew up. I was yeah. like I have been fed a lie my entire life. Not only that, like when we talk about drinking, we have to talk about two things. We have to talk about, you know, overall consumption. How much does a person drink either units per week or any whatever. But we also have to talk about binge drinking, which, you know, is more than five drinks for a man in one period, blah, blah, blah. So unfortunately, some like, for example, in Germany, not only do they have one of the highest per capita rates of alcohol consumption, they have one of the highest rates for binge drinking, which means that, okay, yeah, they're drinking 14 units per week, but they're doing it in one sitting. So, you know, there's two different ways we talk about this. And then when I was talking about the layers of Mm -hmm. prevention stuff, Mm -hmm. so one of the things I mentioned was, okay, so this early drinking or giving kids sips, giving kids drinks when they're younger so that they'll somehow, quote, learn to be moderate. First of all, If you have alcohol use disorder, you can't learn to be, I can never learn to be a moderate drinker. I have one drink and I'm off to the races. Number two, so we also know that we can predict who is most likely to start, for example, drinking, since we're talking about alcohol, early. And those things are being white, being male, um, having low attachment in the family, low family management, meaning like parents aren't really parenting, they're more like friending, that kind of stuff. And a couple of other factors. So when I start talking about prevention, you know, there are lots of layers. Yeah, we want to prevent kids from drinking when they're young because that is going to seriously raise their risk. Plus, we haven't even talked about this yet. The reason that any drug and alcohol use during adolescence is way more dangerous than it is as an adult is that the adolescent brain isn't done developing till the early to mid-20s. So things that could be low to moderate risk for an adult are moderate to high risk for an adolescent. We know that kids who use, for example, are regular users of cannabis have smaller hippocampuses than kids who don't use cannabis. And the hippocampus is the center of memory formation, storage, processing, all that sort of stuff. We know that there's thinning in the in the frontal lobe, which is the adulting part of the brain, the last part of the brain to come <laughs> online that's so important. The reason we tend to get so frustrated with our adolescence is that that part of the brain is just not fully online yet. And the last thing we want to do is mess with that so that they're even further behind the curve on that part of the brain, hooking up to the rest of the brain. So there are just so many layers here to get at. So that was a very, very long-winded answer to your question. (laughs) No, I'm so glad because it brought up all of these things. And what I want to really talk about is this family culture and family values that we really do express through the rules. For example, giving your child's And my parents, I remember getting a little glass of champagne Mm -hmm. on New Year's, I don't know, New Mm -hmm. Year's Eve, New Year's Day. And I was probably 
nine or 10. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I thought it tasted gross. Like to this day, I'm like, please (laughs) give me the sparkling grape juice. Like I was never like, let me drink this until I like it. That was never my MO. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so it was very normalized in my family. And it wasn't like every time, you know, they had a beer, they would give me a beer, but it was definitely like a special occasion. Here's a glass. And so that I would say probably started on the fringes of early childhood. And I think that is a really common practice in a lot of different households. Yes, of course it is. There's a reason that there are loopholes in laws for religious observances and stuff like that. And I completely get that that is a good part, a big part of it. And I'm so glad you brought culture up because I get to kind of rehearse what actually a video I have to make today is because it turns (laughs) out (laughs) that culture Culture can exist in a country like Germany. Yes. Culture can exist in a family. Culture can exist in a school. Culture can exist in a village. It can exist in in a friend group. So Mm -hmm. never Mm -hmm. underestimate the power of a culture to influence the way people act, the way people, the habits and things like that. Because people, when they call me out on the Europe thing, they're like, well, what about this area of Europe? And I'll say, okay, well, that's an interesting exception. It turns out that particular country either has, you know, obviously there's some with religious prohibitions against drinking, but some countries simply it's not cool to be publicly intoxicated, excessively publicly intoxicated. Whereas in other countries, it's absolutely normal. So if you look at the EU, for example, that has some of the highest rates of drinking in the world, there are exceptions within the European Union. And that's because in certain countries, it's less cool to be falling over drunk. Whereas You know, I went to school in England and I've spent time in Northern Ireland and there are people unconscious all over the place. And that culture influences how people are going to act. And I almost didn't even put a college chapter in this book because I was sort of the thinking, oh, Animal House, everybody drinks in college. And it's simply not true. And culture of a college, a state, the laws of a state, the culture of where you live. The predictors for who's going to drink in college really have one of the biggest factors is where they live on campus. And are they a big sports fan or not? Those kinds of things really influence those culture of sports, culture of the Greek system, culture of whatever the place is, plays a huge part in this. So family culture is really important, even if it just means you know what it is, because some families have never even thought about it, right? We didn't fully shape our family culture around, for example, alcohol until we had to face it. And once I got sober, my husband wanted to know, okay, what does this mean for me? Because he does not have a problem with alcohol. Um, Does this mean we don't have alcohol in the house? Does this mean I don't drink? Does this mean I do drink? What does this mean for us as a family? And so we had to talk about it. I mean, like newsflash, talking about these things is so important. So does that mean for building like what a protective family culture against risk factors for Mm -hmm. alcohol, what that looks like is, does that mean having these ongoing conversations about alcohol or who drinks it or why we drink it or what it Mm -hmm. does when we drink it? And maybe it's both very clear rules around rules, like expectations around it. Like what does that look like? No, your ex- expectations is the word I use. Every single okay. chapter, every section in the book that's dealing with various mm-hmm. age groups, like I do, mm-hmm. you know, pre-K and K, and then I do elementary um, up to like fifth grade, and then I do middle school and then high school and mm-hmm. college. And in that, in each of those sections, there's expectations, 
and how Mm -hmm. you turn those expectations into practice. So knowing Mm -hmm. what the expectations are around lots of things, like every, not just about alcohol, but about, you know, who's responsible for what in this house, you know, where we do house, this is all gift of failure stuff um, from my first book, but like, you know, we don't call them chores. We call them household responsibilities or household duties because doing chores around the house or doing those duties around the house is part of being a family. And no, you don't get paid Mm -hmm. for those. You get paid Mm -hmm. money. You get money in order to learn how to manage money. Like those are all about expectations that we set up for our family. And whether that's, you know, we try to have dinner together, we put down our phones when we have dinner together, that's all family culture stuff. And sometimes that's shaped Like if we don't shape it verbally, it's going to get shaped anyway. So why not have, be definitive about it as opposed to just having a haphazard sort of, oh, I guess this is our family culture. Like in our, one of the big things in our family is that we really prioritize sleep. We're just really fanatical about the importance of sleep and getting a good night's sleep. And that's been a part of our family culture since my kids were really young. And partially that's because my husband was in medical training when my kids were really young. I had one kid during residency and one kid during his fellowship. So we were pretty fanatical about bedtimes and rest time in the quiet time in the afternoon. That's just become a part of our family culture. And even when the kids are home visiting from college or my 24 year old comes home from like, comes home to work from here for a week from New York city, you know, It's interesting. Quiet time still shows up as a thing in the afternoon, especially on weekends. So anyway, it's going to happen, family culture, whether you define it or not. So let's define it. And then, like I said, you define those. And then there's all kinds of stuff in the book about how you actually turn those expectations into practice, how you help kids put them into operation. Yeah. Um, And that's important, too, because that's not something that's easy to figure out on your own if you're a little kid. So each one of those ages and stages kind of thing has the guidelines and sort of scripts and, you know, ideas for turning expectations into day-to-day practice. But that's in the gift of failure. No, it's in the addiction or inoculation. Or is that an inoculation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The stuff I talked about in the well, gift of failure. Yeah, expectations. Like, it's right there. Yeah. Okay. If you look at, it's in the house rules chapter, I think. And, but in gift of failure, I talk a little bit about it too, but yeah, love that. So, and and so that's a really clear expectation that, you know, we wait until we're 21, like in this house, you 21 and over has a drink and there, there aren't exceptions. And I love that example of you do because, and you explain why teens are more apt to be prone to high risk behavior. That was a really mm-hmm. illuminating chapter for me. But so what happens when they do get into a situation right. where they might try it or whatever, like mm-hmm. there are consequences and they're they're pre pre discussed so they're not blindsided there's not shame there's not judgment it's just oh you know now like we've got to talk about this we've got to kind of come back together and discuss this well and those those really clear consequences and that is a part of both books you know setting up really clear expectations and really clear consequences Mm -hmm. Mm because especially little kids predictability 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 they like knowing where the lines are and p.s so do teenagers so and they really rely on us to enforce those lines and but the really important thing about consequences is that especially for younger kids they have to be as natural as possible and for us we talk about logical consequences what we do but natural consequences are like so for example in gift of failure i talk about the idea that if a if the expectation is is that a kid is in charge of making sure homework gets done and that it gets turned into the teacher 
the consequence for if that doesn't happen is not we take your phone away. Because to a kid, Mm -hmm. even to a teenager, what does a phone have to do with not turning in homework? Like if I'm in the real world and I work for a boss and uh, my work doesn't get turned in, the logical consequence, the natural consequence is, is that I have to go and have a conversation with that person about what happened and how not to do it again. So as a teacher, one of my favorite things to do is have these parent-teacher-student conferences where the student has to lead it. Like if you say, okay, you're in charge of the homework, you're in charge of making sure it gets done, it gets in, and if that doesn't happen, you will be in charge of running the meeting where we both show up, you run it, and we have to figure out how to support you in coming up with strategies that will work for you in the future. And I can guarantee you they're going to hate that way more than losing their phone for a little while. And it will make more sense to them and it will make more sense all the way around. Yeah, it makes more sense. And it's also focused on like the solution. Right. And how do we support? How do we help? How do we move forward? And it's not just like I call it like getting sucked into the vortex of the mistake, you know, like, okay, the mistake was made or the choice was made to not do the homework or you forgot the homework or whatever. Mm -hmm. The system broke down somewhere. How do we reestablish or create a a more helpful system? Right. Well, since you have little kids, since you tend to deal with little kids, Mm-hmm. So my first book, mm-hmm. The Gift of Failure, was basis for the curriculum for a show on Amazon called The Stinky and Dirty Show. And The Stinky and Dirty Show is about these kids, who, these machines who think like preschoolers and are given a task and they have to complete the task. And of course, the first solution they come up with is ridiculous, right? It's not going to work. Wallow in it. They don't feel bad about themselves. They don't deride each other. They say, okay, well, that solution didn't work, but what parts of it should we keep? Like what did work? What has promise? And what should we leave behind that didn't work? So with little kids all the way up through, you know, college age kids, or even I got a text the other day from someone who I've been support, trying to support in recovery and they relapsed. And so they relapsed. They're like, I'm so ashamed, blah, 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 blah. And my first question back to them was, okay, well, what did you learn? What did you learn Mm. about yourself going into this? Because this relapse is really valuable if we take something from it in terms of information and learning. And what do we leave behind? What are you not going to do again? What have you identified about yourself that doesn't work or that, you know, causes problems? And what are you going to take with you going forward in your recovery so that you, you will be less likely to relapse? And you brought up something really important that people get all heated about, which is what if I have let my kid have drinks? What if my kid has already screwed up and is drinking? Is it, have I just, have I wrecked them? You know, and then that taps into all kinds of defensiveness and shame and guilt. And that's all crap. I mean, if we've read any Brene Brown, we know that gets us nowhere. (laughs) In fact, not only does it not get us anywhere, it makes us sick and makes things worse. So the answer is the same thing we tell our kids. What did you learn from this experience? What are you going to do differently next time? With kids, even littler kids, you can say, you know what? Yes. I was using the best possible information I had to be your parent. I believed that if I gave you sips, that it would help you be more responsible with alcohol when you get older. And you know what? I learned something. I learned that it doesn't work that way. And so I am going to take this new knowledge and go forward with a few new practices. Here's what I'm going to do differently moving forward. So I know before I let you have sips, and in fact, this is what we had to do with my daughter because my son was raised pre 
research for this book. And my daughter was raised post. (laughs) So the rules for my 24-year-old were sips were allowed. He could have his own beer here and there, that kind of thing. And then my poor daughter, she's, you know, the rules are very different for her. And I don't, I just for the record, I don't say no, not until you're 21. What I say is not until your brain is safe from and done developing. Love that. Because we talk, safety is such a common word we use all the time with Mm -hmm. our kids like in order to ride a bike or use anything with wheels is what we say like use anything with wheels you have to wear a helmet it protects your brain if you fall off like it keeps your brain safe that is such a common phrase in our house with our children and so I love that and my children know we've started to have and I think it's Tina Payne Bryson and Dan Siegel that talk about explaining the brain and how it works, right, to young children. And I believe that's in The Whole Brain Child, their book, The Whole Brain Child. Tina's a good friend and I can recommend every single one of her books wholeheartedly. (laughs) She's amazing. She's She's amazing. She's a rock star. She really is. She's been on the podcast and I just like, I'm, I love her book so much. So I think the brain, but how we talk about the brain with our children. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a really powerful thing to do with our children when they're young and talk about keeping our brain safe because that's what makes our body work. That's how we think and make choices and do all the, and fun things. We always try and link what do we enjoy doing to kind of add that motivation for our kids? What do you think is yeah. fun? Oh, we need our brain to do that. You know, yeah. <laughs> my kids um, got a really good object lesson in that when I finished the day yeah. after I handed in the rough draft of the gift of failure, I used to train some horses and I got thrown from a horse and I landed <gasps> on my head with oh. a helmet and I oh, suffered a closed head injury and it was bad. And yeah. so my kids got to see the possibility of my career being over. Like I couldn't wow. read. I couldn't use a screen. I couldn't do so many things. I was incapacitated for a fairly long period of time wow. and it was really bad. And so like for them, that's a really interesting object lesson for them, Powerful. which is, you know, yeah. yeah. And, and we have those conversations. Like my older son, um, my son, uh, sorry, my 24 year old, my older kid is an academic. The kid is, he's an economist. He's applying for PhD programs. You know, he's just, it's all about what's in this brain case right here. And, you know, we've had conversations about, he's almost out of the danger zone in terms of, uh, in terms of brain development. Like he's, he's pretty close to things sort of wrapping up up there, but you know, it will impact his short-term memory. It can impact his frontal lobe. It can impact all kinds of uh, parts of his brain and that he needs Moves. desperately. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so your so your daughter was nine. You said nine and 14. And so your daughter's the younger yeah, my daughter one. So was she nine. was nine yeah. when you got sober. And so nine and 14, yeah, the house rules and the house culture must, must have just really shifted drastically, obviously, when mm-hmm. your relationship with alcohol changed quite a bit at that point. And so I think that's a really important takeaway for parents to just know that if your children are older, or even if you haven't talked about it and they're still little and you're like, oh my gosh, where do I even start? Well, if you've started talking about emotions, you've already laid a really important foundation. And now this is just one Mm -hmm. more layer we can put on. I work in a rehab here in Vermont. It's called Santa at Stowe. And I was working with someone a while back who, you know, I work with a lot of parents there. And one of the biggest Mm -hmm. sources of worry and guilt and shame and all that stuff is what, how they're going to tell their kids and what have I done to my kids and how, you know, blah, 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 wanting to, wishing that they'd gotten to recovery earlier, blah, blah, blah. The reality is, is that one of the best 
things, one of the most amazing protective factors they're giving their kids is modeling, admitting that they have a problem and asking for help. There's an amazing episode of Armchair Expert with Dak Shepard, and he talks about, it's called Seven Days, yes. and it was when he yes. relapsed and had to go back yes. and, and admitted on, at seven days of recovery that he's, you know, 16 years of recovery. He knew how it works. He's, you know, been in recovery for a long time and he relapsed. And I've been believe wholeheartedly that as much good as he did talking about being in recovery for 16 years, he has been way more beneficial to the world as someone who was able to come forward and say, I relapsed and here's what led to it. Here's what was going on in my brain. I'm starting over, but with a lot more knowledge, this is not like, it's not like I'm starting over, over because I have some tools that, and here's what I'm not going to do next time around. And here's, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was an incredibly brave thing that he did. Yeah. Brave, vulnerable, powerful. Yeah. It was also a little weird because I had just been interviewed by him and I realized, oh, I was interviewed by him when he was really using a lot of opiates. (laughs) It was really interesting. Wow. (laughs) About this book? About this uh, book? No, he interviewed me about The Gift of Failure, my first book, because a couple of years ago, my phone blew up one morning out of nowhere. I, you know, it just all of a sudden my phone was just going off and going off and going off. And it was because everyone was letting me know that um, Kristen Bell had held up my first book, The Gift of Failure, in front of her face on Instagram <laughs> and wrote, Thank you so much, at Teacher Leahy. This is the book every parent needs to read. When Kristen Bell does that in front of her millions of Instagram followers, your phone has a tendency to blow up. So yeah, so I ended up going on (laughs) Armchair Expert to talk about that book. Oh, that's great. Well, that's a great resource. I'm going to link all the resources you gave to parents and obviously your books in the show notes because and that interview with Dax Shepard is just really powerful um, to listen to. He's so vulnerable, so honest. It just, yeah. It's humble and it's relatable, especially if you've struggled with substance use disorder or you love somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the more we talk about it and like we've had conversations for you, this seems to be a hard topic to talk about. People don't want to talk about it. But like when I start talking about it, it's amazing how many people know someone, have dealt with this, have an experience, and there's just so much shame surrounding it. And like you brought up Brene Brown, she's one of my favorite resources for my own self-work. How do we get rid of that shame? How do we change? Mm -hmm. We have to get rid of that shame first. And so shining a light on it, bringing light to the conversation and normalizing it with our kids is just so incredibly important. So I'm grateful for you and you speaking out about it, you sharing what you do on social media and your book. It's definitely a resource that I recommend to all parents, not just parents who come to me with questions about addiction. Thank you so, so much. That's so kind. It's, you know, what's been interesting about having one book that Gift to Failure was like a New York Times bestseller and it was an easier, you know, there's some hard topics in there, but it's still, it's something that it's about learning and it's about resilience. It's not shiny, controversial, (laughs) right? But then you come up with a book about called The Addiction Inoculation and it scares people to death and it's just harder to get people to talk about it, which is why I do a daily video so that people can do it like in the comfort of their own home without I'm doing, for example, I'm doing a, you know, an event soon about the book and it's always a little dicey getting people to come out in a community and be present for a conversation that can push so many buttons for people. 
So virtual events events have been a godsend. People can be there anonymously and listening, you know, watching those videos on their own time in the privacy of their own home seems to yeah. seems to work for people. And I don't care how people learn about it as long as they Absolutely. do. So I'm incredibly grateful to you for supporting all of this message and for giving me a place to talk about it. Well, thank you for being here. And believe it or not, we come up to Vermont sporadically, (laughs) not during the winter, I have to say, not during the winter, but my husband's family has a house up there. And then if you're ever down South with an event, I just, I'm so passionate about this. I'm in Florida. Oh, okay. I actually will be in Florida in the fall. I'll be in the Tampa area in the fall. Um, but yeah, I, I get to travel a lot for speaking. I'm off to Houston next week and it's it's just so much fun. And speaking of which, one of my favorite things about traveling so much is going to recovery meetings in other places. And I get to have favorite recovery meetings in lots of different places. And you know, when even when I go back after not having been there for a year, there are always people who are like, oh, welcome back. It's so great to see you. So Aww. you know, it's, it's a real gift to be able to travel around and talk to people as much as I do. It's a special community you're building yeah. and you're a part of. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> 